Father, thank you. Thank you for the ability to come here in this moment, in this place, and hear your word. The truth is you are speaking, God. You're speaking to us. As we just heard from your word, you just spoke to us. And so I pray that my friends, my brothers and sisters, that even now as I'm praying, that they would be praying, God, would you speak to us this morning? We're here. We're listening. Would you teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us, so that we may be made complete in you, Jesus? Would we feast from your word because we're hearing you and listening and seeking to obey? We love you. Holy Spirit, be with us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. My wife and I are about to celebrate our ninth year anniversary uh, in just a couple weeks, nine years. It's like that moment where we're not rookies, but we're not veterans. It's kind of like a weird in-between. That's how I feel right now. <laughs> we're not rookies anymore, but we're not veterans. And one of the things that I was thinking about as, as I was thinking and pondering over the next couple weeks as we're about to celebrate was what, what it was like when I first entered into her family when she first entered into my family, like what it meant for me to marry into a different uh, cultural context. My wife's family is from the uh, southern state of India, Kerala. Um, And so I didn't realize, but when I married my wife, I also married an entire community of people, (laughs) the Malayali community. And it has been a beautiful picture of what life can be like together. Because, you know, me, as you can tell, I am a pretty straight-laced, buttoned-up guy with all of the kind of American values that have been instilled in me, like do hard work, go at it, go be who you want to be. It's very individualistic, is it not? And what I realized is I married Jess, and as I got grafted into this community with open arms, I was like, oh, they do things different around here. (laughs) They love each other. They are quick to be with each other in the midst of both high and low. Not saying that, you know, I did it as an American or anything like that, but just this reality of like, there's something very different here. There's a value set that's different. And that began to open my eyes to like, wow, what is it like to live in community, to live together really, really faithfully, really truthfully, really honestly, and recognizing that both my upbringing and this community that I was grafted into like all of us, we don't know how to be together when things get really, really, really hard. Like when tragedy strikes, when loss really hits. And I think what today is in Psalm 52, as we have been laboring to understand what does it mean to wait on God? What does it mean to wait in his presence? How do you wait in the midst of tragedy? How do you wait at great personal loss? How do you wait when you don't know the answer to the story? You don't know how it's going to end, but you're just feeling this pain and this, this anxiety and this worry wash over you. How do you wait in the midst of tragedy? And I think it's asking this question for you and for me. Are you waiting right now? And if so, are you waiting alone? And if you are waiting alone, stop waiting alone. Because what this psalm is going to teach us today is waiting together waiting together is better. Stop waiting alone. Waiting together is better because flourishing is available. 
in the midst of tragedy, stop waiting alone. Wait together because flourishing is available. I want, I want us to see how this proves out here in this psalm. Would you look back here with me in verses 1 through 5? We have to try to understand how waiting together is exactly what we need in the midst of tragedy. Let's read this together. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot uproot you from the land of the living. So first glance, what is going on here? What I think is going on here is very simply this. The first reality of, for us to wait together, what we need to come to understand together is that tragedy marks all of our stories. Tragedy marks your story. It marks my story. And in that place, we're exposed. Tragedy marks my story and your story. And in that spot, in that place, we are exposed how, you might be asking, Tyler, did you get that from these five verses? It seems like it's talking about a deceitful tongue and words that are tearing down. Well, it's important to understand the context of it. In 1 Samuel 22, I have a couple verses. I'm not going to read all of it, but 1 Samuel 22, it gives the context. It's so important for us to understand this psalm. We have to understand what is happening behind the scenes of this psalm. 1 Samuel 22, it says in verse 13, Saul, so this is the king of Israel. David's the rightful king of Israel, and he is on the run at this moment. He's running for his life. Saul is, does not want to give up the kingship. He's ready with spear in hand to pin him up against a wall to keep a hold of what he wants, okay? And so we get this, uh, this, this conversation between Saul and some priests, a priest named Ahimelech, and then Doag, the Edomite, okay? Verse 13, Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? This is to the priest, Ahimelech. You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he's risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. So what happened right before this is Doeg tells Saul, hey, David came to these priests and he was given resources and he was given a weapon and he's waiting for you. He's going to take you out. Which was not true. <laughs> right before this, David was waiting in a cave. He was waiting in a cave and he's, he's laboring to, to honor Saul for all he is and what he's done. And that's not what happened. But here in this moment, this lie is propagated. And verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And he looks to his servants and he says, kill them all. And they can't. <laughs> they can't do it. So then he looks to Doeg and Doeg takes them out. Eighty-five people are killed. Eighty-five innocent priests are killed in this moment. This is the context of one through five. Tragic. Tragic. <laughs> it's not just about words tearing down, but it's like, hey, the words that just tore down have consequence. David is hearing about this from one of the sons of Ahimelech who survived and came and told him about what happened. And so David is pinning this psalm in the midst of tragedy. He's pinning this psalm in the midst of, of loss, in the midst of like exposure, like I cost that. They died for me. Tragedy marks all our stories and it leaves us exposed. All of us have points of tragedy in our story. Here's a few words, maybe besides tragedy. Tragedy, you might, you might hear from me, you'd be like, Tyler, that feels a little dramatic. Like, I don't know if I would name tragedy as a part of my story. Like, I haven't experienced something tragic or what I would think of tragic. But here's a few words to help us understand. Calamity, okay devastation, 
catastrophe, also setback, trial, tribulation. All these words, what do they have in common? They have in common loss. Do they not? All of those words and many others I could insert here, they, they, the thread that ties them together is loss. Haven't you experienced loss? Have you experienced loss in your life? Well, you, then you've experienced tragedy. You've experienced the marks of tragedy. And didn't that loss in that moment make you feel exposed? Make you feel broken down? Make you feel like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can keep going the way I've been going. Like, I have to stop. I have to recognize, like, something is different here. Something has happened differently. I was up here a couple weeks ago, and I shared a picture of uh, Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings, and today I was like, man, I'm just going to let my nerd card fly again because I love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> One of the things that I get frustrated about with the movies, okay, I'm not going to make this about what I feel frustrated about with the movies, great movies, is that they change the ending of the third movie from the ending of the book. So everything's, the ring's destroyed, they have this massive party, like the uh, Aragorn's made king, all that stuff's happening, and then the hobbits, Sam, uh, we have Frodo, Mary, Pippin. They all go back to the Shire, and what they find is an entirely different place. They, what was once green and peaceful is now overtaken by industry, and they realize that essentially a martial government had been formed by Saruman, one of the main villains of the story. He's, been, he's there. He's enacted vengeance. And imagine for a second, like, the, the poignancy of this in the book is they just thought that they did what they were supposed to do. They just went through this entire war. It's been resolved. They get home and everything's changed. Loss. They have to fight again. <laughs> it's tragic. It's loss. And I think for you and I, if we have to be honest with ourselves, we have lost home a long time ago. Genesis 3 was the beginning for us in humanity where we lost home. We lost our home with the creator of the universe, all good life, peace, joy, and comfort. And then from that place, what has flowed out is all these micro losses that we experience in our story. And some of them are macro losses where you get a phone call that someone you loved is now in the hospital. Or how you're dealing with the, the marital issue that you're dealing with. Or that that friend slandered against you and betrayed you. Do you see how your stories are marked with loss? A loss of home. A loss of peace. A loss of love, unity, comfort, and joy. All of our stories are marked with this and it leaves us terribly exposed. So what do we do? What do we do? What did David and the son of Ahimelech, what did they do? Well, they say in verses 6 through 9, which is the rest of our time together, you recognize what I need us to see is we have two paths here we can go. We can either take this first path that I'm going to talk about, or we can take a second path. And there's two outcomes to each path. The first path is this. Go it alone. Because of all the tragedy, because of all the loss, because of all how your story is marked by all these realities, the first path that you can choose is to go it alone. You can go it alone with all your might and with all of your frantic, nervous, anxious activity. That's the first path that's laid before us. Look here with me to show that this is the first path. First, take notice in verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? I'm going to focus here on this word man. Did you notice here it's singular, okay? David and uh, Ahimelech's son are not like pinning this 
David's not pinning this in the midst of this, and he's not talking to a group of people. He's talking to one single individual isolated person. Some think it's Saul. Some think it's Doeg. They both have these, this blood on their hands in this tragedy. But what he's trying to say is, hey, this person, whether it's Saul, whether it's Doeg, they're going it alone. Oh, mighty man, I'm talking to you. And then we see all of these verses kind of continue here. And then in verse 7, see the man who would not make God his refuge. Do you see here? The singular again. Go it alone. That's the path that the tragedy of our lives, the loss that we've experienced, the first path that we can take is to go it alone. To go it alone. So what does this path look like? What is this path of going it alone with all your might and all your frantic activity? What does this look like? How do you know you're on this path? Maybe some of you are already here and you haven't realized it. How do you know you are? How do you know to not get on this path? How do you know what this path looks like? Well, here are four quick observations that help us understand. Look here with me in verse five. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. Do you feel the cyclical nature of loss here? Like the loss you've experienced Maybe the path is, okay, I'm going to go it alone. I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to white knuckle it. I'm going to, with all of my might, all of my gifts, all of my abilities, I'm with frantic, anxious, nervous activity. I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to walk down that path. And I'm going I'm to keep trying to muster it up and make it better just on my own. I don't need anyone else. I don't need anything else. I just need me in this moment. Verse five, he will snatch and tear you from your tent. Loneliness begets loneliness. Feeling alone and being alone and going it alone will keep you alone. There is no way to get out of that cycle, as we see here in verse 5. That's the first observation. God, as we see here, tears you from your tent. The second, in verse 7, trusted this man, this person who's going it alone, trusts in the abundance of his riches. This word trusted here, it, it is meaning to rely on, to, to secure to have confidence in. It's, it's a whole being like, I'm jumping in on this. I'm going it completely alone and I'm gonna secure it. It's that frantic energy, that frantic activity there. The third, sought refuge in his own, verse seven. Refuge here is a place of safety. So if you go it alone, not only are you begetting this loneliness, continuing the cycle, not only are you frantically trying to fix it by, by putting your trust in everything that you think you can put your trust into, not only that, but you're going to construct your own refuge of safety, your own place of safety, the place in which you can recall, recoil back into and feel like, okay, I think I'm okay. Verse 7, the scariest of it all. How do you know you're on this path or what does this path look like? If you're going it alone, it ends in destruction. Did you see it here? Sought refuge in his own destruction. Maybe you're on this path. How do you know you are? What might this look like in the soil of your heart? How do you know that you might be dealing with this? Here's how these observations may be present in your heart. Okay, so first, tearing you from your tent. Are you looking up lately? and you find yourself alone? Like, you're going about your life, and you look around, and no one's around you? I don't mean just proximity. I mean, like, heart level. No one's around you. No one knows what you're going through. No one knows the thoughts that you're having. 
No one knows what you want to say and do in the midst of this. Have you looked around and you're just like, whoa, what is happening right now? I'm alone. Do you, second, trusting in the abundance of your riches, do you find yourself frantic in your collection and consumption of material possessions? Do you find yourself frantic in your collection and consumption of material possessions? Have you organized your life to get the bigger and the better? Have you organized your life to gather in as much as you can so that you can feel as secure and safe as you can? Friends, if that's you, you may be on this path of being alone, of going it alone. And I recognize loss after loss after loss is maybe pushing you into that, into that path. But the reality is, you may be finding yourself looking around and there's no one around you. You may be finding yourself collecting and consuming all of these things. Third, seeking refuge in his own, verse 7, maybe you're finding yourself running to a place of safety of your own making. For me, as I've shared before, it's, that's been my anger, my ability to control my circumstance, the different micro losses that I'm experiencing in my life. I, I learned at an early age that if I get angry enough, I'm not going to change anything, but if I get angry enough, I feel like I'm changing something. That's my area of refuge, of my own destruction. And I've felt it time and time again as relationships are, 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 are picked apart, as I'm, as I'm distancing myself from it, as I'm angry in the midst of it, if I'm irritable, like it just breaks things down. Your refuge is not as safe as you think it is. The place of safety that you have made for your life is not that safe. It's treacherous. There's destruction waiting there. That destruction, verse 7, maybe you find yourself with a trail of destructive patterns. Maybe you're finding yourself with a trail of destructive patterns. Maybe it's been your finances, like you just can't get them under control enough and enough and enough. Maybe it's the ash heap that you might call a relational wake behind you. It's just like one person is upset with me after another. Or maybe it's these two seemingly opposite directed narratives in your mind. It's all my fault or it's all their fault. Do you see how these things are destructive? Like if, if I'm blaming myself continually, it's all my fault, it's all my fault, or it's all their fault, it's all their fault, I'm going it alone. And there's destruction that's waiting for me there. And that's the outcome. The first path is going it alone, and the first outcome is destruction. You will look up. Maybe not right now, you don't notice it. But you will look up based on, I believe, God's word, and at some point look around and be like, what happened? Friends, there's a new and different path to take. Psalm 52 is saying it. It's literally blinking here, telling you, hey, there's a new path. There's a different way. The second path, the other option, the way in which that you can, if you, your story is marked by tragedy and loss and you're feeling exposed, you can choose to wait together. Wait together with none of your might and none of your frantic activity. Wait together together open-handed. Here, let me prove this to you out of the text. Take notice of the difference of paths already in verse 6. Did you see here, the righteous? This word righteous is plural. Now we've moved from the man, now we've moved to the righteous. 
just the singular, alone, individual, isolated. And now we've moved to a group of people here in this moment. We've moved in this, we're moving into, okay, together. What does this look like? How do we get out of this isolation and this loneliness? Will you wait together? First, the righteous. And then you see in verse 8 the phrase, house of God. Whenever you see this phrase in Scripture or in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's not just talking about the presence of God, but being in the presence of God's people as well. Like you're among the presence of God's people. So what does it look like to take this path? What does it look like to wait together? To wait together, to not go it alone, but wait together with none of your might and none of your frantic activity. I've got three observations that help us see this here. First in verse 8, trusting in God's love. Did you see it here? I trust in the steadfast love of God. This word love, uh, if you were to phonetically spell it, a lot of people would like to try to spell it with C-H, kased. But if you talk to a Hebrew scholar, <laughs> they are like, no, no, it needs to be K-H, and you need to put some umph into it, like <laughs> kased, you know? Like that's what it needs to be. It needs to have this tickle on the back of your throat. And the reason for that is because there's something special about this love. Biblically speaking, there's something super special about this love. English words have problems translating it. So here's our way of trying to put this together. What is this love that we're talking about here? And what does it look like on this path of waiting together? That waiting together unlocks it and and secures it for us. We see it here. It's a type of affection you have for someone, but it's more than affection. That's why it's so hard to get our our minds wrapped around it. It's like, it is a type of affection for someone. Like all of us, if I were to pull you and say, hey, who do you have affection for in your life? You would be able to name someone or name the feeling of affection that you have felt in your life from someone else, a time where you have felt loved. This type of love is that, but it's more than that. Not only that, but it's a type of loyal commitment that's birthed out of generosity. It's a loyal commitment that's generous, that's, that's striving to, to, to be with that person for the long run. Can you think of an English word that captures that meaning? It's really hard. Love. That's what we mean by the steadfast love of God. The loyal love of God. Waiting together, the first observation of what it looks like to be on that path is you get to experience the loyal love of God of God. Loyalty, no betrayal for the long run. Generous, an affection like you've never experienced before. That's what this is. Verse 8, what this path, a few observations of what it's like to wait together. It's, it's practicing gratitude. Do you see it here? I will thank you forever because you have done it. It's practicing gratitude for what God has done and what he is going to do in the future, that all of his promises will come true. You're practicing gratitude, not just what he's done in the past, not just what he's doing in the present, but what he's going to do in the future. Waiting together, the observation of this, what it means to be on this path is there's a sense of gratitude in all the tenses of time, (laughs) past, present, and future. And, verse 9, wait in God's goodness together. So this is how I'm trying to get you to understand the waiting together portion of this path. That what we're doing is we're waiting together. We're waiting together to experience the steadfast love, the loyal love of God. We're waiting together, practicing gratitude of past, present, future realities of who God is and what he has done. And we're waiting together in his goodness. But I need you to see something grammatically here that's really important at the end of verse 9. I will wait for your name. 
Why? For it is good in the presence of the godly. I do not think the goodness of God can be fully unlocked for any of us in isolation from one another. If you have questioned and doubted the goodness of God, my first question to you is, who knows everything about what you're going through that loves Jesus? Because based on this psalm, I will wait for your name in the presence of the godly for its good. That God's goodness is unlocked when we are together. (laughs) That there is no way to fully understand his goodness all the way through. What I'm about to say to explain what his goodness is, there's no way to do that in isolation alone. We have to be together with God's people. So here's what God's goodness is, and then we'll talk about how these get into the soil of your heart, what this might look like for you. Goodness is first a description of God's essential character. It's an attribute of his, like love and mercy and justice. And here's what it means. It means that the Lord is not evil, that God is not evil, that he cannot be tempted with sin, that he does not love sin. That's what God's goodness means. He's not evil. He doesn't love sin, and he can't be tempted by it. And it informs all the other characteristics of it. Think about this. A good God who's loving means that his love has absolutely no uh, evil in it. There's no false motivation in it. There's no like, okay, if you do that for me, then I'll give you my love. No, it's pure. It's so hard to wrap our minds around. It's just absolutely pure. His justice, there's no evil in his justice. For you and I, when we want to enact justice or see justice seen, there is a tinge of vengeance in it, a vindictiveness in it, but there's none with God because he's good. This is God's goodness, that he's not evil, that, there, that he doesn't love sin, and that he can't be tempted with it. So, how do these observations get into the soil of our heart? How, do, how, do, how does this work? The steadfast love of the Lord, trusting in it, the practicing gratitude, the waiting in, in God's goodness together. What does this look like? Well, first, you would find yourself wrapped in both the love of God and God's, and God's people's love. You will find yourself wrapped up in the love of God and his people. You will find yourself wrapped up in a loyal love of God and his people. That a people at the center where the gospel is good news, that Jesus has lived and died and rose again. What that means is that you get to live in with a group of people where betrayal is not the first, the first reflex. Where, where destruction in relationship is not the first outcome. That you get to actually open yourself up to trust because of loyalty. God's loyal love is now amongst his people in loyal love. And that being shown to us, that's freeing. I can open my heart up a little bit more. I can trust in him a little bit more. I don't have to, I don't have to posture. I don't have to pretense because I can be loved here. Um, My brother Jeremiah, uh, when I was planting a church, planting a church is tough. It's good work, but it's hard. I questioned God's love for me all the time because I would confuse fruitfulness and faithfulness with God's love. And I remember waiting for God to act together, meeting with Jeremiah, talking with him and being like, hey, this is what I'm going through. And him just looking at me and saying, Tyler, God loves you. Do you know that? He loves you. This is what it means to wait together. (laughs) 
Do you see the difference between the frantic activity and trying to muster it up myself? It's just, I just need to go figure this out. I need to go crack this code. But waiting together for God to move, for him to act in his presence, wait, doing that together, another brother gets to look at me straight in the face and tell me he loves you. He loves you. He's for you. He's not for your just what you can produce an outcome. He just loves you. Friends, my heart exploding because it's like I need to hear those words and I won't hear them on the path of going it alone. I can only hear them on the path of waiting together. Or this, the second observation here that we, that we saw. How does this get into the soil of our hearts? You would find yourself thankful for all that has happened and expectant for what may happen. We say this a lot around here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always giving thanks in all circumstances. And we say that all, like underline it, bold, italicize it, all means all, not just the good things, but the bad things. What would your life look like if you and others around you who love Jesus and are following Jesus could hear your story and know your story and be like, that is hard, but you know what? I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the hard. I'm thankful for the difficulty that you experienced because I hear God pulsing through it. You don't get that if you're on the path of going it alone. You only get that if you're waiting together on his presence, in his presence. You have to wait together to experience this type of gratitude. Not flimsy gratitude, but real strengthened gratitude, thankfulness for what God has done, what he's doing right now, and what he will do. The tragic parts of your story, the marks of your story that are hard, that in that, he's going to make it right. And we can thank God for it together. Finally, you find yourself experiencing the goodness of God, not theorizing if it's real. You finally will find yourself experiencing God's goodness, not theorizing if it's real. Have you been in that spot? I have. When I have been on the path of going it alone, I look up and I'm like, God, how can you be good? That feels like a theory. That feels like something, some theologian somewhere put on and it doesn't mean anything for my heart and soul right now. But together, if we're waiting, you get to experience his goodness in the midst of tragedy. Don't lose sight of what we opened with here. 1 Samuel 22 Ahimelech's son has come to David and essentially has said, all of my family, everything I have known is crashing and is done. They've died. And it's because they helped you. The loss that they are experiencing in this moment, and yet he's able to say, I will thank you forever because you've done it. I will wait for your name for it is good. In the presence of the godly, waiting together, you get to experience the goodness of God. You don't get to theorize it anymore. That when the teeth of life come at you and are hunting you down with loss and grief, you get to experience this. I had a dear brother uh, just six, nine months ago go through a really hard, hard moment with a loved one, accident and pain. And he would call me and he's like, I don't see how God's good. And understanding this down, deep down in my heart and soul, in my bones, being able to on the phone with him. And when I got to see him in person, look at him and say, I know you don't understand how God is good, but I can see how God is good. (laughs) 
let me show you how God is good. <laughs> he is. He's not evil. Even though you're going through this heartache, even though you're going through this pain, even though you're going through this loss and this confusion, this anxiety, he's good. When we wait together, you don't have to hold the line of God's goodness on your own anymore. You have a whole family who gets to hold the line of God's goodness for you. When you can't, you don't get to experience that if you're going alone. But you can experience, if you experience that if you're waiting on the presence of God together. So what's the outcome of waiting together? Well, it's flourishing together. Did you catch here? I didn't gloss over it for, I, I didn't pass it or skip it for a reason. Verse 8, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Thinking about this, 1 Samuel. Oh, friends. <laughs> 1 Samuel twenty-two, twenty-three. This is what David says to Ahitub, Ahimelech's son, at the very end, after this report, what he's saying. This is what David says to him in 1 Samuel 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. How is he able to say this in the midst of all this tragedy, in the midst of all this loss? How can he, as, he, as David's wrestling with, oh, these people have died because they helped me. <laughs> this man is coming and sharing his heartache and pain. His answer is, come wait together with me. Verse 8, David says, I'm like a green olive tree in the midst of this, in the house of God. See, waiting together with none of your might or frantic activity leads to flourishing here and forever. It's important to recognize an olive tree in, ancient, in the ancient times is an important reality. <laughs> like it's an important imagery for us to recognize. Did you know that olive trees are known for their resiliency? Like you can plant them in the hardest of soil, in the hottest of temperance, and they will survive. Like they don't need much to care for. You can put them in the rockiest of soil and they will grow and they will flourish. And not only that, they will last for hundreds of years. On average, an olive tree will survive for 500 years. David, in the midst of all of this tragic loss, what is he saying? He's saying, in the face of this, because we're waiting together, I am like a green olive tree. This is turbulent soil right now for my heart and soul. I don't know what's gonna happen but I have a resiliency together that cannot be given in any other way. They're known for their resiliency. They're also known for their vitality and fruitfulness. I have a few verses up here. Jeremiah eleven sixteen, 16, Hosea 14, 6, Psalm 92, 12 through 14. Just talk about the olive tree. Do you see it? The Lord once called you a green olive tree as Jeremiah is talking to the people of God. Beautiful with good fruit. In Hosea 14, 6, his shoots shall spread out his beauty, shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. In Psalm 92, 12 through 14, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. The biblical language and narrative of an olive tree like this is chock full with a reality of the only way you get to experience flourishing like this, flourishing like David in the midst of this bad news, the only way to experience that is to wait together. 
It's to be in the presence of God and to be in the presence of his people. That's the only way. You will not experience it on the path of going it alone, but you can experience it on the path of waiting together. And we see this. We see this in the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was exposed in tragedy. The God of the universe came down and put on flesh, happy in the triune nature of who he is, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he stepped down into time. That's a tragedy because he put on flesh. He was exposed because we were exposed. He was so loyal in his commitment to us that he would do that, that he would step into that space. And in so doing, he was made to be sin who knew no sin. He took on your sin and my sin. He took on the the reflex and the gut reaction to go it alone, to, to frantically try to get everything together and try to make ourselves straight up, buttoned up and ready to go. He took all of that. All of the ways we sin against him and one another, he took it on himself so that we have a path out. Jesus took the journey of destruction. He took it so that we have a path to waiting together in his resurrection victory. And on the third day, he rose again and he found those who were waiting together. John 21, Peter and his friends, they're out on a fisherman's boat. They're waiting together. And I might argue some of them are running. Some of them are trying to go alone. They're tempted to go it alone. But Jesus in his resurrection glory, while they're waiting together, what does he do? He shows up on the shore and he cooks them breakfast. He says, let me show you what I have for you. You have been waiting together. Guess what? Go wait together some more (laughs) in the upper room in Acts 1 and 2. And I will give you purpose, direction, and the means to go about the work I have called you to. I'm going to give you myself. Keep waiting together. Friends, our stories are marked with tragedy. It's marked with loss. We feel it. We know it. Will you be tempted to take the path of going it alone? The answer is yes, you will be. But you don't have to. You can take the path of waiting together. And in so doing, experience the loyal love of God. You get to practice gratitude for what God has done, will do, and what he's doing right now. And you will experience his goodness now and forever. Would you take that path with us? You can in Christ. And it's the adventure and journey of a lifetime. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. I pray that as your word goes out, that it would prove true where you say that your word goes out and it never comes back void. I pray for all of us in this moment who are going it alone. God, would you show us there's a better way that even though tragedy and loss mark our stories and we're exposed in that place, we don't have to stay there. We don't have to keep living into this cycle of of being alone, that you've given us not only yourself, but a family. You've given us each other, that we can actually wait together with no posturing, no pretense, honest, open, laid bare. And you are so excited and delighted in giving us a true understanding of your loyal love. The joy that comes from practicing gratitude in this way. 
experiencing your goodness here and forever. We don't have to wait to see your face. We can, we can actually experience your goodness now. And so for my friends who are going alone, would you please help them get on the path of waiting together? And for those of us who are waiting together, waiting on your presence, waiting in your presence, waiting for your presence, would you help us stay right here? Would you help us hold that pose? Would you help us actively and strenuously hold it? And would you come through in your presence? Would you give us more of your heart? Would we get more of you? Would you help us see that you're making all that was wrong right? And we can wait together and experiencing it all together. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.